This is a Beggy Sisa podcast. So the sad news is that our Pfizer vaccines start to expire from the 31st of March. The bigger concern is down the line, because at the current rate of utilization, there will be expiry of vaccines up to 7 million doses in June and July. And if we're not able to use those by the 31st of March, we will have to destroy it. And that would be a crime. Welcome to the second edition of our Pekisisa podcast for 2022. I'm Mia Malan. What on earth is happening to our COVID vaccine rollout? The take-up of jabs has been much slower than what the government had planned for. And as a result, the health department is very far behind its goals. By the end of last year, they wanted 70% of adults to have received at least one shot of vaccine. Well, we're now two months into the new year and we're still not nearly there. With only 47% of adults who have had one jab so far. So what has gone wrong and what is the department doing to fix it? In today's episode, I'm asking the man who heads up South Africa's vaccine rollout, Dr. Nicholas Crisp, all about this. But that's not all. Many of you have asked questions on Twitter that you would like answers to. For instance, when is South Africa going to vaccinate children between the ages of 5 and 11 years? And why is South Africa not relying on COVID vaccination certificates for entry into the country instead of asking people to present PCR test results? So stay tuned to hear answers to these questions. Dr. Crisp, thanks very much for making the time to join me today. Let's start off with where we at. Less than half of adults have had one shot and only 42% of adults have been fully vaccinated. Are you disappointed? Yes, I'm very disappointed. We've worked very hard to put the infrastructure in place. It's quite an expensive exercise. It's been huge commitment for the staff on the ground. So when people don't come for vaccination, it is disappointing, yes. So vaccination campaigns obviously have many components and you have managed to get the vaccines. But the other part of a campaign is to get the people to their places where the vaccines are, and that involves communication. So do you think you failed with the communication campaigns because the people are not coming in the numbers that they should be coming? Getting the vaccine to the people is uh, absolutely the primary responsibility of the health department and nobody else could have done that. That was our job. Getting people to get to the vaccination, our disappointment has been that all the partners, government departments, civil society, companies and so on, have not all rallied around. The health department is not a marketing campaign. It's not our primary expertise. So yes, we have failed to a certain extent and that's what we're disappointed about. I'm not being ungrateful for the many thousands of people and all the radio stations, TV stations, the media people who have rallied around us. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it has been a disappointing outcome. The University of Johannesburg and Human Sciences Research Council's mm. Vaccine Hesitancy Survey. It mm. shows that one of the main reasons why people who are vaccine hesitant don't come to get vaccinated is because they don't know where to go. And that relates directly to communication on the ground to people. So not necessarily press conferences or press releases, but speaking to people directly on the ground. Yeah. Do you have plans to improve that? 
Yeah, we do. So I think the health department is complex. It's not one, it's 10 departments and the provincial health departments run the services on the ground. So they know where the sites are that are operational. They know where which vaccine is and so forth. The private sector providers are responsible for their sites and they know what they are capable of delivering on any given day. And I think each of them has been through the channels available to them. But what we do need is to mobilize civil society organizations. They are far closer to the ground and they are able to go door to door. They're able to work with small groups within local communities to tell that community where the vaccination is available. So, yes, we do have a plan to work more closely with them. One of the things your department announced was to reduce the waiting periods for Pfizer COVID vaccines between the first and second dose and also between the second dose and a third booster. And Mm. you have mentioned that you did that because you hope that more people will return for their second doses and for their boosters. And if we look at your health department figures, about one in five people don't return for their second doses. Why do you think this would help? We know that the 21 days does give a very good immune response. And because we have a lot of vaccine available, we have reduced it back to the 21 days. The boosters start to give good immune response from 90 days. It's not like a hard and fast. It has to be 90 days or it has to be 180 days. It's any time from 90 days, most people's immune systems will create good, sustained immunity. For most of us, and this is a reaction rather than a proven statement, for most of us, the longer we wait and the more we delay, the greater chance we have of postponing or forgetting entirely. I mean, I'm even guilty of that myself. I qualified a week ago for my booster on the old 180-day regimen. In a way, I'm hoping most people work like I do and that if it is a shorter time frame, you are less likely to forget and you're more likely to be motivated to continue with what you've set your mind to. So a question that so many of our Twitter followers at Pekisisa have is that they have seen that you have said in the media that we have 27 million vaccine doses and 7 million of them will expire around about June, July. What will happen if this strategy doesn't work to make more people or enough people return for their second doses and also get new people on board? What will happen to those vaccines? So the sad news is that our Pfizer vaccines start to expire from the 31st of March. Fortunately, that's a small number that expire from the 31st of March. And if we're not able to use those by the 31st of March, we will have to destroy. And it's a process to destroy vaccines. You have to destroy the bottle. You have to destroy the content and everything. So it's an additional expense to destroy them as well as a loss of an opportunity to get people have an immune response. The bigger concern is down the line, because at the current rate of utilization, there will be expiry of vaccines up to 7 million doses in June and July. And that would be a crime. So obviously, we would like to use that vaccine in South Africa. And that's why we're stepping up campaigns to encourage people to come for their first doses, their primary doses, a mixed or a heterologous booster dose after Johnson & Johnson, and basically to use the vaccine. Simultaneously, we are in discussions with the global community to see who else could use that vaccine in the short term. But we've been critical as a country of other countries trying to give us short expiry vaccine doses. It's been a phenomenon throughout the world, and we don't want to do that to other countries. We also know that the countries we would like to give vaccine to 
in a sort of a swap, if you like. We'll, we'll get vaccines later if they take our vaccines now. Those countries don't all have the capabilities to manage Pfizer vaccine. It's logistically difficult. It gets stocked and stored at minus 70 degrees in the central stores and then to minus 40 in the peripheral stores before it goes out. Not everybody has that kind of electricity and backup power supplies to maintain that kind of cold chain. So it is complicated, but we're aware of it. It is down the line. It's extremely disappointing. It's more or less equivalent to the donated doses that the United States government gave to us when we were in trouble. In my opinion, it would be a disaster if we do end up having to destroy vaccines. Just to get back to March, you said there's a small amount that will expire by the end of March. How many vaccines are those? Just over 400,000 doses. And you've mentioned that it would be like a crime if we don't manage to use it. Do you feel responsible as a department for the fact that we're behind and might not be able to use it? Um, Look, obviously we're responsible, but do I feel that we've done everything possible we have? We still have the capability to vaccinate over 250,000 vaccinations per day. We've thrown our entire budget and our entire minds and bodies behind this. Healthcare workers have worked pretty much 24 hours a day for almost two years now. And we really have thrown everything into this. So while we remain responsible, and I personally am responsible for the vaccination program, it's more just a profound disappointment that people don't understand the value of the vaccines and aren't coming for their vaccination. On that question, so you have mentioned that you've put everything into this, but it still hasn't worked as well as it should have worked. What do you think was the problem? You know, I read also the the same reports you've been referring to, and I tend to agree with it. Why didn't people come to vote when we are given an opportunity to vote for our own democratic future? Why don't people engage when other opportunities are provided? There's a broader societal issue that as South Africans, we are fed up. We're angry. We're angry with our government. We're angry with the establishment. So generally, I think this is a bigger issue. Obviously, there are anti-vaxxers and people who are aggressively destroying other people's lives and opportunities. With them, we must be angry back. But it's a far broader thing than that. It's a fertile ground for that disinformation. So the one thing the University of Johannesburg survey shows you that you can act on immediately is to tell people where to get vaccinated. Not enough people know about that. What is it that you're going to do about that? You can't communicate micro details from a national perspective, but we can provide the information. So that's available on the websites of the department and on the provincial departments. But it's the radio campaigns at a local level that are of uh, fundamental importance. Do you sponsor some of the radio campaigns and are you going to make sure that provincial departments actually like get the right campaigns out? There's a team nationally. We've got this group of young people now who are designing the messaging and testing it amongst the community that they operate with. There are 120 plus radio stations that are involved. The print material is prepared and so on. But the social media campaign needs to be run by them. So when you say print material, are you going to have pamphlets that will be distributed, say, in rural communities where, you know, people are not going to go and see what's on a website? 
Yeah, they always have been. They have always been in all 11 languages. In fact, at one stage, they were in 13 or 14 languages because we were distributing pamphlets into communities that speak non-South African languages. So that print material is available, will continue to be available, and it's unbranded. It doesn't have the Department of Health logos and official government branding on it. It's called Kiredi, and if you see Kiredi, that is part of officially sanctioned communication material. Why is it unbranded? Because people are fed up with the government, quite frankly, and they don't want to see old people like me and my face on TV anymore. They want to see people who they can identify with and uh, young doctors, young nurses are a far better brand than somebody, (laughs) frankly, who looks like me. So I have a few questions that our Twitter followers are asking on Twitter that they really want answers to. And one of the most common questions is they want to know if South Africa and if so, when will vaccinate children between five and 11, especially now that Pfizer has applied to our medicines regulator SAPRA for approval for use in this group. We'll see whether the regulator approves the use. I understand that some other countries that had started vaccinating that age group have withdrawn their original approvals. In the meantime, the Ministerial Advisory Committee on Vaccines will also be watching the scientific journals to make sure that we get the information that is available in the science community about whether it is safe and effective. And uh, if it requires purchase of more vaccines, it's unlikely that we'll do that because we don't have a budget set aside to procure more vaccines given what we've already got. There are a lot of unanswered questions and we'll cross those bridges when we get there. So just to make sure that I understand you correctly, you're saying that if SAPRA does approve the Pfizer vaccine for children of between 5 and 11, and that means that you have to buy more vaccines because they come in different vials and you can't just use the vaccines that we currently have, then South Africa is unlikely to vaccinate children between 5 and 11. So purchase is one of the issues. More important issue is whether it's going to be scientifically proven to be an effective part of a campaign. So far, there's not evidence for that. One of the questions, health workers who were part of the Sasonki trial, who got vaccinated with Johnson & Johnson and then also got boosted with Johnson & Johnson. One of the questions they want to know is now that the health department allows for the mixing and matching of boosters, they want to know if they will be able to also get a Pfizer booster. So a third shot after already having been boosted with J&J, if the health department would allow that. Okay, so I've specifically asked that question of the Ministerial Advisory Committee, and the initial answer was the second dose of Johnson & Johnson is quite adequate for a generation of an immune response. However, they are currently studying the literature that's available on boosting after a second Johnson & Johnson, and they will advise us on that. So in other words, if they look at the literature and it proves to be safe to have a third dose, a Pfizer dose, So something people are a little bit confused about, especially on Twitter, is they asking, so we didn't reach the health department's goal of reaching 70% of adults by the end of last year with one vaccine shot. So what is the new plan now? Is there a new date for this goal or what is the health department trying to achieve with goals this year? Overall, the World Health Organization has set all countries a goal to vaccinate 70% by September. We would obviously love to be there long before September. That would be our goal. But we have sub-goals. 
So when you communicate to the public, you may well communicate the big picture. But when we are working on our own goals, they are very specific to geographical areas and age groups and people who are seriously at risk. So we have a whole lot of sub-goals, but the big national goal is still to have 70% of the total population vaccinated. Our goal for older people is to make sure that more than 70% of them are vaccinated everywhere. So it doesn't help to have one part of the country where it's 75 or 80% and another part that's sitting at 45%. We need everybody, every community to have their older people protected. Although the target is 70%, our sub-target is that we look at every community and we need to make sure that we leave nobody behind. So where do the problem lie at the moment? In which provinces or districts are the vaccination rates for these older people lower? I'm asking because if we look at your dashboard, it looks like 67% of people of 60 and older have been vaccinated with one shot. So that is right. That's nationally. Obviously, we drill down to the actual vaccination sites. We collect the data at that level. And there are some districts where they are well over 75% already, especially in Limpopo. Parts of rural Limpopo and rural Eastern Cape are well over 75% of the community of that age is vaccinated. But there are other parts and other communities, notably in some parts of Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal, which are heavily populated areas where the population over 60 are not well vaccinated and we need to put in a lot of effort to get those communities. So the average conceals the challenge. So if we look at your 70% goal nationally for all adults, you've mentioned the goal of the World Health Organization is September. You'd like to achieve that a bit earlier. Do you have a date that you have in mind to have that goal reached by? <laughs> Well, at the current rate, we're only going to reach it by September. So I guess we should be happy that at least at the current rate, we can reach it by September. So another question people on social media have is that if you would like to increase vaccine uptake, would more options of vaccines not help for that? So they're asking if the health department is going to make other approved vaccines such as Sinopharm and Sinovac available soon and um, whether you think that would help to improve the uptake. Uh, no, definitely not. Or what it would do is it would be a huge waste of money and a massive logistical challenge for us to introduce more vaccines. Massive. Because every vaccine that we introduce has got different logistical requirements, different reporting requirements, different batches, different needles and syringes. It's a massive, massive nightmare to do that. So do I understand you correctly that the health department definitely does not plan to introduce Sinopharm and Sinovac or any other vaccine that may get approved by SAPRA? Yeah, we're definitely not buying vaccines this year. So the possibility is there next year, 2023, but definitely not now because we've got so many vaccines, we don't need to buy more. The possibility is very real that we'll have a second generation vaccine before the end of this year and that all other vaccines will be switching to a completely different second generation. We're hoping that globally we'll not be dealing with a pandemic anymore and that those that have got good coverage will be under control. We would like to be amongst those with the good coverage who are under control and we'll be dealing with this as an endemic disease. If we carry on at the rate we are vaccinating at the moment, that is elusive and unfortunately we're not going to get there, whereas other parts of the world will be there. 
you know, I guess it really depends on how well we do as a nation in the months ahead. Many people are asking, why does South Africa still require PCR test results for entry into the country and not just a vaccination certificate? And also, is that likely to change? The bottom line is, yes, it is likely to change. And like everything in COVID, we learn as we go and the phases of the pandemic changes. So the risk changes and so our mitigation strategies change. So it is likely to change that some countries have already stopped requiring PCR tests. And uh, that is under discussion here as well. Is there a timeline or an indication within which time frame it's likely to change? I can just say soon. Does it mean weeks or does it mean months? So as with everything, no decision gets taken by one person. There are scientific considerations. There are various committees of decision making where we all make sure we're all on the same page. There's more than one government department involved. So we need to give time to the process for us to consult. One of the beauties, one of the benefits, I guess, of the Disaster Management Act was that decisions could be made very fast. And during the height of the epidemic, everybody was meeting two or three times a week. Now we still have the Disaster Management Act and regulations in place, but we don't even meet every week anymore. We would need either to have a special meeting or to wait for the next round of meetings before these sort of important decisions are made together. And do you know when the next round of meetings will be? It was due for this week, but I think because of the budget speech, it's been moved out and we don't have the new date yet. So talking of the Disaster Management Act, many people want to know that when we stop implementing that act, whether there will be changes in the kind of non-pharmaceutical measures such as mask wearing that we implement. They want to know that with mask wearing outside, for instance, stop to be mandated and would there be different rules that makes it easier to operate? You know, that that's more similar to the way that yeah. we left before COVID. So even with the Disaster Management Act still in place and the regulations still in place, those measures are possible. It's not the act that stops it. It's our decisions based on where we are in the pandemic that gave rise to those provisions such as mask wearing everywhere. So those are under discussion. They are on the table. They are part of the agenda that we are busy with at the moment, not just in the health department, as I said, but in uh, relation to other government departments. That is not mutually exclusive of the termination of the application of the Disaster Management Act. However, it may coincide. What we do need to make sure is that when the Disaster Management Act is no longer applicable, that there are sufficient laws in the country to do the things that the Disaster Management Act allowed us to do. So like infectious diseases regulations, uh, environmental regulations, the ability of social development to pay the grants that need to be paid. And not all of those capabilities that were created under the regulations of the Disaster Management Act exist at the moment in existing laws. And that's why it's taken time for the statutory process. A government department, a minister, may only promulgate a regulation if the Act provides that that regulation may be promulgated. In the case of health regulations that are governed by Section 90 of the Health Act, they must be published for three months before the application comes into effect. And uh, if there's a pandemic or a flare-up or an epidemic within the pandemic, 
we may not be able to react in time. And those are concerns to us that we are dealing with at the moment. So do I understand this correctly? So if you say hypothetically, say no more outdoor mask wearing, and we have another pandemic appearing somewhere within three months, you can't just tell people to start wearing masks again if we don't have the Disaster Management Act. Correct. Well, we certainly couldn't do gatherings and we, there would be no provision for curfews. There'd be no provision for stopping people moving between districts or whatever we needed to contain transmission. The provisions in the current regulations and the provisions of the Act allow for the minister to restrict the movement of an individual at a time, not a whole community at a time. That was Dr. Nicholas Crisp from the National Health Department. He heads up the country's COVID vaccine rollout. Remember that you can now mix and match COVID vaccine boosters. So you can have a Pfizer booster if you were vaccinated with J&J or a J&J booster if you were vaccinated with Pfizer. You can also have the same booster as the vaccine you were vaccinated with. The choice is yours. That's it for this episode. In our next episode in about a week's time, I will be speaking to Professor Salim Abdul-Karim from the health organization Caprisa to find out what the future of COVID looks like. What exactly does the science say? Goodbye from me, Miamalan. Until next week. This was a Pegasisa podcast.